amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. This is a very unique match. Never before have both championships been hung above the ring in this manner with so much on the line. What's the goal of this match? The goal is one champion. In a tables, ladders, and chairs match, we will hang both championships above the ring. The goal being one champion at the end of the night. One undisputed WWE champion. Let's face it, with the brand extension no longer in effect, there's no need for two champions. We only need one. If you represent the WWE as its champion, you represent the world. I want there to be one undisputed WWE champion. The Solid Monster sounds off. Hulk Hogan has definitely been that rocket fuel that TNA needed. This doesn't make any sense. Your title belt is made of leather. You're not a real vegan. He's fat. Two of them beat up properly. Woo! Welcome to episode 303 of the Solid Monster Sounds Off for Sunday, December 1st, 2013. I am the Solid Monster. You can listen to this podcast every week. On the Solomonster.com, that's where you can get full episodes, you can download them, you can stream them. We're also climbing the Stitcher sports charts every week, so you can stream us on there, Stitcher Radio, and download the show in iTunes. I hope everybody had a happy Thanksgiving. We, uh, It's funny, you know, we had a, a family gathering with uh, cousins, and you know, we were invited. And so they did something this year kind of unique. They did a grab bag. So everybody had to go out and spend no more than $15.00. Buy a grab bag gift, you throw it in there, you pick a random number, and then you get a gift. So, yeah, the grab bag gift I got, I was in the container store. I don't know if anybody has been in there before. Here in the city, there's a few of them. And I like the container store because if you go in on the first level, they've got all these different little trinkets and just like tchotchkes, all these different things that I wouldn't even know where to buy stuff like this. Like really cool, useful items. They have these USB drives that are... You know, in the form of like a little ninja man that you plug into your laptop and just all these weird, wacky things. And so I found this thing called CubeBot. It basically looks like a Rubik's Cube. And you have to contort it and you shape it and it turns into a giant robot. But when you fold it back down into its original form, it looks like a friggin' Rubik's Cube. So I got this thing and, and of course on the side of the box it says it's good for ages 3 and up which automatically meant that I was interested in it because I'm like a giant child. And the more I looked at this thing, the more I said, I don't really want to throw this in the grab bag. I, I kind of want this for myself, but you know, I'm too cheap to go back out and spend another $15 on this thing. So I, I conspired. I conspired with my brother to where uh, if nobody picked it before he did, and he got a higher number than me, so he got to pick first, he would pick my gift and then trade it back to me, and that's what he did. So I'm very happy. I have a, a, a cube bot sitting here on the desk maybe i'll take a picture of it and put it up on twitter but yeah it's, it's actually really cool i don't know if uh cubebot.com or whatever the website is it looks like they make these things in brooklyn but i'm a happy camper i want to give uh, some paypal shout outs really quick here jason gray and anthony mcgregor for making donations to the show this past week 
You can make a PayPal donation to the sound off, uh, whatever amount you see fit, thesolomonster.com. Scroll down just a little bit. On the right-hand side, you'll see the little PayPal donate box. Uh, it's your guys' support in that way and others that keeps this show going. So please consider doing so if, uh, if you have something to spare. It's very much appreciated. I also want to talk about layfieldreport.com. I have a new column up on the Layfield Report. It's been a little while. I was thinking, you know, what am I compelled to write about? Because, you know, people are writing about this title unification at TLC, which I'll get into in a little bit. And they're writing about Roman Reigns and how he's the next big thing, which, you know, I think a lot of us, myself included, have been saying for months. So I didn't want to write about that. And then I thought about what what really brought joy to me in wrestling this week. And what brought joy to me in wrestling this week was NXT. NXT the last two weeks, I think, has been awesome. And it's been pretty consistently uh, one of my favorite shows each week. And I think part of that is it doesn't overstay its welcome. So... When the show ends, more often than not, it feels like it just breezed by. It doesn't feel like, oh my god, you know, we have another hour of this crap left to go. You know, it's usually a little less than an hour. It's an easy watch. And in a lot of ways, it's better than what you find on TV on Raw and SmackDown every week because it actually makes sense. They actually build stories that make sense. What a novel concept. Uh, the, the character development when it comes to guys like Bo Dallas, who I think is, is just friggin' awesome, uh, in his current role on the show. The most recent episode, we had a main event of Sami Zayn and Adrian Neville, which was off the charts, easily the best match of the week. Uh, nothing else on TV could even hold a candle to it. So there's a lot of things, a positive things going for NXT right now, and I feel like if you're not checking it out, you're shortchanging yourself, because for all the people who probably are not all that enamored with what they find on Raw and this whole authority storyline, which has just been uh, frustrating, I think is, is a good word for it, you get good wrestling, you get character development, you get stories that make sense. You get William Regal and Renee Young on commentary. And Renee Young, Renee Young as an interviewer, as a backstage interviewer, is fantastic. On commentary, she's got some work to do, but she's getting better. And it's, it's unique to hear a female's perspective at the commentary desk. You know, we, you know, I can't remember the last time we had a full-time female announcer calling men's matches. I just don't think that's ever really happened uh, consistently, week to week. So she's getting better at that. Regal, of course, is awesome. A lot of the guys down there are just awesome because you see the little character tweaks. You know, sometimes they'll change week to week, and it's just kind of fun to follow along. Uh, the women, the divas, light years ahead of what we see on TV every week. The women's division that they have down there in NXT is great. Uh, the stuff that they're building, you know, they're building tension between Paige and Emma two fan favorites, although, you know, you watch a character like Paige and you do, you kind of ask yourself, why is she a babyface? She's kind of a giant brat. Uh, but, you know, that's compelling. They have the storyline where Summer Rae and Sasha Banks, they have this little group called the, uh, you know, the BFFs, and they just brought in Charlotte. So Ric Flair's daughter, mark this down, Ric Flair's daughter, first heel turn. She's got a lot of catching up to do if she's going to catch up to her dad. So they have their little group, and Bailey is kind of this starstruck character that you can't help but love, and she feels betrayed, and now she's teasing, bringing in a mystery partner. And the thing about Summer Rae, and I talk about this in the column on Layfield Report, Summer Rae is an example of somebody who gets the short end of the stick on, on the main roster. Because she's Fandango's... What does JBL call her? Mrs. Fandango? Okay, she comes out there and she dances. She's actually a good wrestler, and she's getting better. I think she's got the potential. I don't want to call her the next Trish Stratus, but I think if she keeps at it, she could be that level of talent 
you know, in a few years where you look at her and you go, wow, you know, she used to be here and now she's here. And we had two Survivor Series matches this week that we had to suffer through with the Divas on the main roster that they just rushed through. And Summer Rae was in both of them. I don't know that she got in a lick of offense at Survivor Series. And on Raw Monday night, her one role in the match was played for total comedy at the end. She did some dancing and she got beat by John Cena's girlfriend. So I know not everybody is a fan of women's wrestling, and that's fine. I can't say I blame you the way that they've treated it for so long. But if you want to see what, what you know Summer Rae and some of the other women are actually capable of, watch NXT. Because I find their women's division to be a hell of a lot more enjoyable than whatever the hell they're doing on TV right now. I mean, they've got this Total Divas show, which I guess is a success, ratings-wise. They just renewed it for a second season. And that's all well and good, and it's, it's, it's given Natalia more TV time, I guess. But what's really changed with the Divas division on TV since Total Divas came about? We have more Eva Marie, who can't do shit. JoJo who's got no business being in the ring. And, and if, quite frankly, if they're going to have JoJo on the main roster, then they lose their excuse as far as Paige is concerned. You can't say Paige is too young because JoJo is, what, 19 years old? Those are some of the main things I touch on. There's a, a lot of other little things as well that I love about NXT that I talk about in the column. So check it out. It's up on LayfieldReport.com. Let me know what you think. And if you've never checked out NXT... Now's a good time to go ahead and do it, because the show used to be you have to pay whatever the subscription fee for Hulu is. Now it's free, so you can check out the show for free on Hulu. Uh, If you live outside the U.S., it might be on TV wherever you are. I know it's not on TV here. Uh, Check it out. I think you might enjoy it. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but there was a pay-per-view last Sunday. You might have heard about this, called Survivor Series. Went 5-2 and in my predictions. Not too bad. Main event... Randy Orton and Big Show, what a what a shit finish to that main event. That was the third or fourth, I don't know which, horrendous pay-per-view finish that WWE has given the fans. I thought the, the crowd reaction, or the lack thereof, was quite telling during that main event. And when they were vocal, it was mostly them chanting boring, or chanting Daniel Bryan. Daniel Bryan was the most over guy in the Survivor Series main event, and he wasn't even in the match. The Total Divas match on this pay-per-view went longer than the main event. It was only by about 20 seconds or so, but somebody pointed that out to me, and I couldn't believe it. It actually went longer than Orton vs. Big Show, which, looking at Orton vs. Big Show, may not have been such a bad thing, because I didn't think that match was good at all. I see some people saying, oh, it's getting you know undue criticism, it wasn't a bad match. It was a bad match. Okay, I've seen Randy Orton have much better matches, Frankly, I've seen Big Show have much better matches. It was boring, it was plotting, it was slow. Forget the crowd reaction, because the crowd crapped all over that match. I just didn't think it was any good, and I don't see how anybody else could think that match was any good, let alone the finish of that match. Uh, I think, in looking back at all the pay-per-view main events in 2013, and this year now is almost over, we have one more show left, and, and who knows, maybe John Cena and Randy Orton go out there in TLC in a couple of weeks, and they tear the house down. But up to this point in 2013, in terms of an actual match, main event match, I, I think Orton and Big Show probably was the worst one all year. There have been some really good main events this year. This was by far the worst. And you know, we talked about this going into the pay-per-view. I was going to watch the show so I can review it. Plus, I didn't have to pay full price for it, uh, which always helps. But we talked about this. The way they've treated their fans over the last three or four shows, just in terms of the quality of the events. SummerSlam I love. Ever since SummerSlam, it's just been a downward spiral. 
And I think it correlates. There was somebody who either got fired or quit and left the creative team, and I forgot his name. And I would hate to think that he was the sole person responsible for, you know, the, the great TV that we were getting leading up to SummerSlam. But who knows? Maybe he was because I don't know what else you track it back to. It's almost like they forgot how to book wrestling over the last three months. And I don't understand why there's been such a drastic drop-off in terms of the quality of these shows, but there has been. Uh, you know, John Cena beat Alberto Del Rio, so that feud, thank God, is over. They blew that program off. The show ended with the, the Cena-Orton stare-down. Uh, Punk and Brian ended up beating the Wyatt family. I think I had predicted a win for Harper and Rowan. I figured they had more to gain from it, but I guess they felt differently. Mark Henry is back. He uh, came out to accept Ryback's open challenge and beat Ryback, which I know is not much of an impressive feat these days. Team Total Divas won their Survivor Series match. Biggie Langston beat Curtis Axel in a match nobody cared about. Shield and the Real Americans. Now, this was my favorite match of the pay-per-view. I think it was the same thing at Hell in a Cell. The show opened with the best match on the card and then went downhill from there. Uh, Shield and the Real Americans got the win. This was the Roman Reigns show. He was the sole survivor for his team. Four spears, four eliminations for Roman Reigns, who showed his respect to Rey Mysterio at the end of that match after he pinned him. And big things in the future for Roman Reigns. I I said many, many months ago, I envision a very evolution-esque split when the time comes in that Batista got over organically with the fans. The fans couldn't wait for Batista to turn on Triple H and break away from Evolution. And when he did, it was huge. And he went on to be a world champion. He went on to be a big babyface. Now he's a big movie star. Who knows? Maybe Roman Reigns will follow the same path. Uh, but that that's the whole purpose of what this match was there for. And again, really good Survivor Series match. I thought it was the best match on the entire show. Kofi and Miz had the kickoff match. Miz got the win. Kofi slapped him at the end. It was kind of interesting to me. I thought maybe that was going to go somewhere. And you can see hints of maybe maybe a Kofi Kingston heel turn at some point down the road. Uh, I guess anything like that would be good for his career. It's not like he's going anywhere. But as we saw on Raw Monday night, I don't know that they even know where they're going with this. So it probably didn't mean anything at all. So that was Survivor Series. I don't really have anything else more to say about it. It really was not a good show. The main event sucked. I thought it was really uh, awful, quite frankly, the finish that they gave us there. And that led to Raw Monday night. Now, Raw Monday night was at the Nassau Coliseum in Long Island, New York. I was there. Okay, I attended Raw Live at the Nassau Coliseum on Monday night. So I'm giving you the live event perspective here as somebody who was in the building on Monday night. Uh, it's always more fun to be at the shows live than it is to sit at home and watch on TV. Uh, but even that is no excuse this time. I thought Raw was just a bad show. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.
show. All of us who were there were pretty much in agreement, so I wasn't the only one. It was a bad show. It was still fun, more fun than it would have been otherwise to be there live. Uh, but that had little to do with the actual content of the show. We were just kind of amusing ourselves at certain points. Uh, it just was not a good show. Here are some of the main observations. The creative right now in WWE is really, really bad. Okay, And when creative is really bad, it makes sitting there for three hours that much worse. Which brings me to my other point. Three hours. It's too long. I know it sounds like a broken record with this already, but two hours is is a much more suitable length for Monday Night Raw. Three hours, too damn long. I had one person tweet me after I, I commented on this. Now, I'm in the building. Okay, I'm sitting there, and I'm remarking that it just feels too long. And, and somebody tweeted me to say, well, pay-per-views are three hours. Like, that's some sort of rebuttal. Yes, pay-per-views are expected to be three hours. You build to those pay-per-views every single month. Pay-per-views generally feature longer matches and less bullshit. And you don't normally have four-minute commercial breaks during pay-per-views. We, we actually do have commercials now during pay-per-views. But not four-minute-long commercial breaks like you do with TV. Three hours, is it's just too long. And they need to go back to two hours. I don't care if they are making more money off that extra hour. I don't care. Unless they're bringing in an extra $15 million for that third hour, it's not worth it. Long-term, it's not worth it. You're killing your product. And if you can't come up with a few bang-up ideas that are really going to shake things up and get people interested in your product again, you sure as shit don't need a third hour of television on Monday night. I mean, if Raw was so exciting right now, everything was just firing on all cylinders, at least the main storyline was really compelling, because you're never going to have all your storylines, like everyone's into everything, right? You have that one main storyline that people can get into, and then you have your little undercard feud. They don't even have that right now. This authority storyline sucks, okay? And so when you have that, it just drags everything else down. You want less of that. You don't want more of that. And that brings me to another point, which I'm sure if you've attended a Raw show, you can probably relate to this, but it really hit me on Monday night, because the show is dragging at one point, and the arena goes dark, it's during a commercial break, and they show us a video of these Attitude Era moments. In fact, I think when the video started, the glass shattered, and my head I, my head popped up, everybody around me, their head popped up, and we all had the same reaction. We all, we all clutched our chest and said, don't do that to us, because we all got excited for a moment there, and then we realized it was just an intro to an Attitude Era video, and we're watching these moments, all the Steve Austin moments and the DX moments uh, and Mankind and Undertaker and the Ministry and, and everything else. Not that the Attitude Era was just perfect. You know, there was a lot of garbage during the Attitude Era too, but this was a video showcasing the best moments. And when the video was over, all I could think sitting there was, God, that was depressing. Why would you show that, especially during a show like this? So that kind of sucked. I might actually shy away from doing that if I were them in the future, because all you do is just depress your audience. Uh, it was also telling to me, being in the building, how over CM Punk and Daniel Bryan are, as compared to everybody else on that roster, except for John Cena. John Cena, he's just in a different league. You know, He doesn't get cheered by everybody, but he's just at a different level than everybody else, because he's been on top for so long. Uh, but Punk and Bryan, easily, easily, the two most over guys in the entire show. I mean, it's not even close. And behind them, the third most over guy in the show Monday night 
was the kosher butcher. Jerry Lawler interviewed some guy at ringside, which I thought only aired to us in the arena during commercial. Uh, but as many of you tweeted to tell me, it actually did air on TV. So I guess this guy helped raise money for Hurricane Sandy relief. Uh, and so Jerry Lawler asked him, you know, if you were a WWE superstar, what would your name be? And the guy said that he would be the kosher butcher, and his finisher would be the circumcision. Which then prompted Jerry Lawler to say, sorry, i got to cut you off right there. Uh, he's a witty guy, that Jerry Lawler. But for the rest of the night, there were tons of kosher butcher chants and chants of circumcision just the thought of a large group of people chanting circumcision. I'd imagine that in some native cultures that probably still happens today, but horrifying. But seriously, other than the butcher, Punk and Brian, most over guys in the show. Uh, you want to do a championship unification match that people actually care about? It should be CM Punk and Daniel Bryan, not John Cena and Randy Orton. At the uh, the Nassau Coliseum, I get in and uh, I'm told that Zack Ryder beat Fandango. I didn't see the match myself, so I can't vouch for whether or not it was a mirage that people imagined it because they so badly wanted to see their hometown boy, Zack Ryder, get a win. But then I found out that the match aired on, on Superstars, I guess it was. So it actually did happen. Zack Ryder got, got a win over Fandango, of all people. I think the lesson here, boys and girls, is unless you're already a main event level guy, don't get injured and don't have to take time off because of being injured. Fandango hasn't been the same since his concussion, and Dolph Ziggler's career has been dead ever since he came back from his, so I guess there's a message in there somewhere. Uh, Opening promo, tons of Daniel Bryan chants. I mean, you could hear it at home. Uh, It was just as loud in the arena. People chanting Daniel Bryan over and over to the point where Randy Orton had to react to it. Uh, I think the fans are trying to send a message. It seems to be falling on deaf ears, unfortunately. Uh, Orton was talking about how, you know, he's the face of the WWE, and he went as far as to say that he's the greatest superstar of all time in the 50-year history of the company. So this brings out John Cena, who makes the challenge to a champion-versus-champion match at TLC. And... You know, the announcers would go on to talk about how this is a match that's 11 years in the making. Because I went back and I watched Raw, you know, parts of it anyway. I wanted to pick up on some of the commentary. You know, 11 years in the making, they're billing this thing. You'd think it would be a much bigger deal than it is, but nobody cares. I mean, how could they? It's John Cena and Randy Orton. And, you know, there are people saying, oh, you know, John Cena, Randy Orton haven't wrestled in like four years. You're just hating on them. It's a match that we've seen before, true, and it's been a while since we've seen Cena and Orton. I don't think it's so much a matter of, oh God, not another Cena-Orton match, as much as this idea that it's going to be John Cena and Randy Orton as the two featured performers battling over these championships. That's fine if the company sees them as being the face of their franchise. Obviously, John Cena is the face of the company. Randy Orton isn't, but that's the storyline. But he's way up there, right? He's been around for like a decade now. He's way up there right behind John Cena. They could do whatever they want to. But don't blame the fans for not being interested. Because I've heard from way more fans who could care less about John Cena Randy Orton than those who are actually genuinely interested in seeing the match. People are just tired of it. They're tired of, of these two guys being in a situation where they're the featured performers. And if John Cena is going to be a featured performer in there with a guy we've never seen in the main event before, yeah, you could accept that a little bit more. Because maybe when that's over, whoever that other guy is will come out of it 
a much bigger star and a guy that people can take seriously in main events. I mean, look, it worked for Daniel Bryan coming out of SummerSlam. I know they've de-pushed him of late, but people took to him very easily as being a main eventer. Whereas before, he was just part of a tag team with Kane. You couldn't call Daniel Bryan a main eventer before. Now you can. See how that works? Randy Orton, he's been feuding with Bryan. It's been a complete bust because of the way they booked that feud. So they moved him out of the picture and they put Big Show in there. As if anybody in the friggin' world is going to care about Randy Orton and the Big Show. And I think part of the problem is they're transitioning from Orton Big Show, which nobody cared about. Because if anything, they wanted to see Big Show Triple H. I don't even see how you do a Big Show Triple H match now. Whatever heat there was for a Big Show Triple H match is gone. Just like Daniel Bryan and Triple H. Is, is there still a real excitement there to see either one of those matches? I think whatever heat there may have been, because they've moved so far away from those stories, it's fizzled out. So you can't even really do those matches. I mean, you could, but I don't think you're going to have the same level of interest in those matches as you would have if you would have done, let's say, Triple H Big Show at Survivor Series and put Orton in there with somebody else for the title. So that's the biggest problem of all. It's not just, oh, they're doing John Cena, Randy Orton. It's that we just got done seeing Orton Big Show, which nobody cared about, and straight from Orton Big Show, we're going to Cena Orton, which seems like a panic move. And if it seems that way, it's because it probably is. I think they realize the last few months have been very uninspired. The fans have not, for the most part, liked what they've seen. So they feel, oh, we got to put together a really big match. Should it be at WrestleMania? Of course it should be. But the fact is, I've been screaming for a unification for so long. I, I did a Layfield column about it a few months ago. It's long overdue. It's the right move. I'm glad they're doing it. But, boy, this doesn't feel like a big deal at all. Not not for something they claim has been 11 years in the making. I think part of it also is the chickens coming home to roost, so to speak. I love that expression. Uh, after all those champion versus champion matches they've given us on Raw over the years, that didn't mean a goddamn thing. How many times have we seen WWE champion against world champion? Just thrown out without any buildup as a match on free TV. Off the top of my head, I can remember a, a few of them at least. Edge and The Miz once had a match, champ versus champ. Nobody cared. Cena versus Del Rio. We had Cena versus Del Rio when both of them were champion at one point uh, in, in the not-too-distant uh, past. They even did Punk versus Brian once. Like it didn't mean anything. This is what happens when you treat your titles like shit. So Triple H made the match official as the main event of TLC, uh, in what will appropriately be a TLC match. They never use the word unification on TV, but Triple H, you heard it at the top of the podcast, I played the audio, Triple H did a sit-down interview with Michael Cole for .com, and he made it very clear this is going to be a match that essentially unifies the belts into one championship. In his own words, with the brand extension over, there is no need for two champions anymore. And he's right, there isn't. There hasn't been a need for two champions in years. So then we turn to possible finishes for the match. What what are they going to do at TLC? Are we actually going to get a single unified champion in December at TLC? I don't think we are. I don't know any sane person who would think they are. Look at their track record over the last few months in terms of pay-per-view main events and pay-per-view finishes. Does anybody have any trust at all in this company to give its fans a clean finish at this point? At this point, I think it would be a swerve for them to give us a clean finish. In 2013, the modern-day swerve is a clean finish. That's where we're at now with this company. 
And so that leads me to believe we're in for another screw job ending, which would be what, five in a row? I'm not saying every single pay per view you have to have a clean finish. A good screw job ending every now and then, if there's a good reason for it, I got no problem with that. Five in a row? I think that's a little excessive, don't you? I do think they're going to unify the titles. I don't think they're doing it until WrestleMania. And I don't know if that means we're going to get another Cena-Orton match at WrestleMania, this time where we absolutely will have a unified champion, so they do a Cena-Orton rematch at WrestleMania, or if it's two other guys. I just feel like it should it should be saved for WrestleMania, and I feel like that's probably the end game here. But they're telling people it's happening at TLC. That's the story going into this match. They're not guaranteeing it. Remember when uh, they they said they were going to have a new champion crown, the title was suspended. This might have been at uh, either Night of Champions or Battleground, but they never used the word guarantee, and I pointed that out. It wasn't until the buildup for Hell in a Cell when I think they realized how pissed off people were, and they had Stephanie go on TV and use the word guarantee, and then we finally had a champion. So I don't see the word guarantee going around yet, which is something to watch out for. But they're telling people it's you know going to happen to TLC. They want one champion. So unless we have a unification in two weeks, we're in for another fuck finish. I don't know too many people who are going to put their money down for TLC. I don't care how big they build this match up to be. There's no way. There's no way that people should trust this company and give them $50 of their money. I wonder if we're going to get a clean finish between now and WrestleMania. I wonder if they just keep this this pattern up between now and April. I wonder. As far as a finish, I, I don't know. Could I see both of them bringing the belts down at the same time? I hear... I think so many people are predicting that they're going to swap titles, that they won't do it just to to spite those people since everybody seems to know. Nobody knows. But there's a lot of conjecture that maybe Cena will bring down the WWE title and Orton will pull down the world title. Or maybe they'll pull down their own belts and they'll just have a disputed finish and then they'll, you know, tune into Raw the next night and see what happens, see what the fallout is. I wonder if there's a way. I haven't given this much. I have to think about this. If there's a way that they could do it. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. Where the title gets unified. Maybe there is, you know, there's a disputed finish, which I'm not really in favor of, but I'm just thinking out loud here. There's a disputed finish. The titles are essentially unified, but there's no champion. There's no clear-cut champion, and so the title is vacant again. I know that's not ideal. They just did that. But somehow is up for grabs in the Royal Rumble match. I can't imagine... I can't I can't believe they 
haven't done that since 1992. And it's hard to do in the last 10 years because you have two belts. But even before that, 1992 to date is still the only Royal Rumble match that was ever contested for the championship. The championship was vacant at that time. And I can't believe they they never did that again. Because I thought it made that 92 Rumble that much more exciting. I mean, it's my favorite Rumble. It's the best Rumble match of all time. But that was a big part of it. They're not just fighting for a title shot. They're fighting for the title. And with two belts, you really couldn't do that. But if they could somehow get them unified, but there is no distinct champion, maybe put it on the line of the Rumble, and then that way you can introduce other people. I mean, anybody can come out of the Rumble as champion. It could be Punk. It could be Brian. It could be Orton. It could be, I mean, it could be anybody. Might make things a little more interesting, shake things up a little bit. I'm just trying to think outside the box here because I, I'm just so bored by what they're doing. I'm just begging them to come up with something interesting. I'm just saying, maybe that's a direction for them to think about. We had the Rhodes brothers, Cody and Goldust, teaming up with Rey Mysterio against The Shield to open Raw. Much like the pay-per-view, best match on the show was the opening match. I thought it was a really, really fun match. Roman Reigns is just a, a beast. Uh, and the crowd was hot. I don't know if it came across that well on television, but the crowd for that first match and the first part of the show, uh, well, really that first match because of what was coming up next. But the crowd was hot. And, uh, you know, Rey Mysterio was more showcased here than he was at the pay-per-view. Uh, but in the end, the, the Shield gets the win. That led us to Miz TV. When I saw them dropping the Miz TV sign in the arena during the commercial break, I knew the segment would just suck the life right out of the crowd. And that's exactly what it did. Uh, it also didn't help that it went on forever. I, I didn't think it would ever end. It just went on and on and on. Michael Strahan, for his part, I thought he was fine. You know, Strahan, Strahan has the TV experience. He does Fox NFL Sunday every week. He's, he does a show every day with Kelly Ripa. He's got the TV experience. He knows what he's doing when he's out there. He's composed. He's witty. He's good. He's good in the role. I didn't have a problem with Strahan himself. So he didn't embarrass himself out there. I felt more embarrassed for the company when this segment was over. Miz is out there. He introduces Michael Strahan. Titus O'Neil comes out dressed up to be Michael Strahan. The way he dressed up as Strahan, he put some black tape over his middle teeth to pretend he had a gap like Strahan. And the fans at that point were kind of amused. They were like, ah, you know, haha. And Michael Strahan, for those of you who aren't from New York, Strahan got a great reaction from the crowd. Because he is, he is a star here in New York. He was a big football star for the Giants. He's on TV here every day. People know him. It's not like they turned against him. They didn't turn against Michael Strahan. They, they liked him. So they're doing bad comedy back and forth. Strahan comes out, whatever. He ends up making what he called a double-team tag-team main event. Not quite sure what that is. I know it's not as bad as Jeremy Piven's Summerfest botch. That much I know. So he made a main event, John Cena in the big show, against Randy Orton and Alberto Del Rio, which nobody in the building really cared about. So this segment, like I said, just went on and on and on. And, and the whole purpose here was to build to a spot where Miz would try to give Strahan a hip toss, and instead Strahan was able to hip toss Miz. Miz couldn't hip toss him. But he hip-tossed The Miz, and then later on he hip-tossed Titus O'Neil. I, I guess the message being that he's a lot tougher than most WWE superstars, which is great. And then came maybe the dumbest finish I've ever seen to one of the... Now, they've done a lot of dumb segments on Raw. A lot of dumb comedy segments and skits and stuff like that. But this was awful. So, that you know, 
it was lighthearted comedy, true, but, you know, Miz just turned heel the week before, no less. I didn't know whether he was supposed to be a heel or not. I'll, I'll talk more about that in a second, but they do this deal with the hip tossing and everything else, and I think Strahan helps up Titus O'Neil, and then the Miz is like, Michael Strahan, everybody, and they all, I felt like they were all going to grab hands, you know, they started hugging, I thought they were going to all take a bow, you know, like a Broadway show when it's over and the, and the curtain comes down. Just at a time when their creative is as bad as it is, they have time to script stupid shit like this. It's just enough. Enough with the sports entertainment garbage. You're not a variety show. You're a wrestling show. You will always be a wrestling show, no matter how hard you try not to be. That's what people will always look at you as. That's what you're always going to be. Just focus on good pro wrestling storylines and less on trying to be cool. Stuff like this does not make you look cool. It makes you look pretty damn uncool. I mean, you're not Saturday Night Live. You're not Mad TV. You're not in living color. You're professional wrestling. That includes action. That includes compelling characters. That includes comedy that actually makes people laugh with you. Okay? Not at you. All of those things. That's what makes wrestling fun. I just was sitting there thinking to myself, is this really the best they could come up with for Michael Strahan? Because in New York, like I said, he's got a name. He's a pretty big star. This is the best you can come up with for Michael Strahan? Someone thought that this was a good idea? They have an army of writers that I'm sure they must pay pretty well. And this is what they come up with. And so much for the Miz heel turn. Here I praise them for finally you know, pulling the trigger the week before because Miz as a babyface was an epic fail. His career has been on the skids ever since. So they turn him heel, but you watch the end of this segment and you never know. Because, why, he has a Christmas movie on television this past week? Yeah, they had that ABC Family Christmas movie that Miz had worked on many months ago that aired on television this past week. So they didn't want a full heel turn from Miz because the Christmas movie was airing. You didn't realize that before you turned the guy? You couldn't wait one more week, two more weeks, and then turn him? The segment was horrendous. Mark Henry and Biggie Langston beat Axel and Ryback. Mark Henry pinned uh, Curtis Axel with the world's strongest slam. Our seats were not bad, but from where I was sitting, all I could think when he came out is, why is Rick Ross teaming with Biggie Langston? And, and really, what a badass team that would make. A lot of tag team matches on this show. We had five of them. I guess uh, Triple H really is serious about this tag team thing. Henry and Langston, by the way, there's already rumors of them having a match at the Royal Rumble for the Intercontinental title. I don't know if that would be a, a friendly match, one-on-one, or if Henry's going to turn on him at some point. I thought for sure when they won the match on Monday and they were holding uh, arms up in the air, I thought Henry was going to turn on him right there, but he didn't. Uh, then, of all the rematches to have from the pay-per-view the night before, I felt like God was pulling a prank on me. He was, he was ribbing me. Because this was the one match I missed from the pay-per-view the night before. And I was happy about that. So, of all the matches to do over again, they decided to redo the Total Divas Elimination match here on Monday Night Raw. I believe my exact reaction sitting in my seat when I saw the graphic was, Fuck! That, that's verbatim, by the way. This match was botchtastic. I normally stay away from, you know, talking about botches and stuff, because everybody makes mistakes, but there's no avoiding it here. This match was just full of botches and bad spots that just made you cringe. Uh, in fact, there were so many fucked up spots, I lost count, so I just gave up. I gave up at five. Divas Stopwatch had this at eight minutes, 23 seconds, which was by far the longest Divas match maybe ever in the history of Raw. 
Uh, I know it wasn't, but certainly in, in years and years. But that doesn't make it any good. Brie Bella pinned Oksana with the X-Factor. Nikki pinned Rosa Mendez. Tamina pinned Naomi and Cameron back-to-back. JoJo pinned Tamina. Yes, JoJo pinned Tamina Snuka. Granted, Natalia did all the work, but still. I didn't realize that JoJo's father is, is Jose Offerman, the uh, former baseball player. Guy's got a short fuse. But he played for a whole bunch of teams, including the Mets. Wasn't very good for the Mets, but he still played for them. Alicia Fox pinned JoJo with a violent backbreaker. By the way, one of the members of our group after the show at the hotel bar could have sworn that he saw Alicia Fox sitting with some dude. Uh, This friend also happened to be shit-faced at this point. So suffice to say, it was not Alicia Fox, and the boyfriend didn't take too kindly to his asking her if she was Alicia Fox. Yeah, New Orleans next year for WrestleMania is going to be very interesting. Eva Marie pinned Alicia. Crowd hated Eva, so they at least have the makings of a real heel with her, even though she can't work. Natalia beat Caitlyn with the sharpshooter. AJ Lee pinned Natalia with a roll-up. AJ was very over with the crowd at, at Nassau. I put her right behind Punk and Brian in the kosher butcher as the most over person on the show. Brie Bella pinned AJ, making a three-on-one with only Summer Rae left on the opposing team. So, what do they do? They have Summer Rae start dancing. It's a shame, too, because Summer Rae is actually really good. I enjoy her matches on NXT, so naturally they don't let her wrestle. Uh, That might be an argument against them bringing up Paige and Emma to the main roster, to be honest with you. At least on NXT, they actually get a chance to wrestle. So, Summer tried to do the worm. She failed. Nikki did a reverse worm, then pinned Summer with a torture rack backbreaker. So, the Bellas and Eva Marie were the last women standing. Up next, we had a Hamptons hardcore match, as voted on by the fans, between Damian Sandow and Dolph Ziggler. So, I guess this is a thing now with these two guys, putting them in hardcore matches each week with a different theme, depending on the city that they're in. And since the Hamptons, you see, are where all the rich people and the spoiled brats go to vacation in the summertime, they littered the ring with boat oars and golf clubs and tennis balls and garbage cans. This is what a a PG hardcore match looks like. I heard that on uh, commentary. Now, I did go back and watch parts of Raw. This was not one of the parts I watched, so I'm going by what I heard. I heard that on commentary, the announcers just cracked jokes the entire time uh, and that the match was played for total comedy. That really sucks. Because these guys were taking some abuse during this match. It went on forever. Uh, It felt like a a really long match. I don't know how long it went, but it felt very long. Let's put it that way. And the crowd really didn't care, but they worked hard. And it sucks to hear that the announcers largely paid no attention to it. I know they're only doing what Vince tells them to do, but I still think that sucks. Sandow won with his full Nelson slam onto a garbage can. So nice to see how much of that match against Cena elevated Damian Sandow, by the way. What a fool I was to think that. Then again, I thought the same thing after Ziggler's win over Cena at TLC last year. So the joke's on me, I guess. They aired a nice tribute video to the late Mad Dog Vachon, uh, during which in the arena it appeared they hid somebody under the ring. We couldn't tell who it was, uh, but we would find out later on. They brought out Renee Young to interview CM Punk and Daniel Bryan in the ring, which was kind of pointless because she never really asked him any questions. It was basically CM Punk cutting a promo. Uh, He referred to himself and Brian as the best in the beard. CM Punk made fun of Triple H at one point for being so creative with all the handicap matches that he's been booking. 
He name-dropped Colt Cabana several times, actually. He called him by his real name. He called him by Scotty Goldman, Matt Classic. Punk was just in total, I don't give a fuck mode here. And it was great. People ate it up. Punk and Brian were in a handicap match against the Wyatt family. Bray Wyatt, Luke Harper, Eric Rowan. Uh, they beat the Wyatts by DQ. Match was over. Harper gave Punk the Lariat, and the Wyatts kidnapped Daniel Bryan. We were told they put Bryan in the trunk of their car and left with him. But in his dot-com interview with Michael Cole, Triple H said they found Bryan in a parking lot, and he was just a little disoriented. Yet, on SmackDown this week, which I've only seen parts of, I heard the last hour of SmackDown was awesome, so I plan on watching it as soon as I'm done recording the show. But from the results I read, Bray Wyatt said that Brian would come back as a monster, and CM Punk was acting like he still didn't know where Brian is. So it appears they can't get their story straight. Uh, but back on Raw, Punk rolled out of the ring to try to save Brian. He got speared to hell by Roman Reigns and then powerbombed by the Shield. So there's your answer about who they hit under the ring. Now the question becomes, did Triple H have the Shield take out Punk after his wisecrack about Triple H during his promo? I guess we'll find out. Punk vs. Triple H, you know, that ended badly for CM Punk the last time they did that. I don't know about that one. At this point, WWE had security remove two guys down in the first few rows who were dressed as Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage. People booed. They weren't happy. I actually saw the guy dressed as Randy Savage in the hotel bar after the show. I don't know if he mouthed off to the security guy or something, but I always thought wrestling was supposed to be fun. This whole thing just came off as lame to me. Maybe if your shows weren't so boring, people wouldn't have to dress up to entertain themselves. Miz pinned Kofi Kingston clean in a match absolutely nobody cared about. Back-to-back wins for Miz over Kofi. Maybe Kofi's the one going heel. Like I said, I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm confused. I'm just as confused as you are. I don't think they know what the hell they're doing. R-Truth came out to introduce Xavier Woods, who they have now given Brodus Clay. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. His entrance to, and his women, at least for this show. I think on SmackDown, the uh, Tons of Funk team had their entrance and their women back. But, uh, yeah, he came out with the Funkadactyls here to Brodus Clay's theme music. And, you know, I guess on SmackDown, Tenzai and Brodus Clay beat R-Truth and Xavier Woods. I don't know where they're going with that. Maybe a, a Brodus Clay heel turn. But anyway, Xavier Woods beat Heath Slater. I'm told that Michael Cole, on commentary, referred to this as a big win for Xavier Woods, proving that Michael Cole clearly pays no attention to the product that he calls on television every week. And the main event was John Cena in the big show against Alberto Del Rio and Randy Orton. Cena forced Alberto to tap out to the STF for the win. 
Uh, it was a pretty dull main event. They were working an angle where Big Show was, I guess, showing the after effects of being punt kicked in the head by Orton at Survivor Series. A lot of us were actually asking ourselves that question when Big Show came out. It's like, this guy got punted in the head last night. If this were anybody else, that's usually an injury angle. And here he is back on TV the next night. But uh, I guess they were playing off that. The doctor came in to check on him, and they let Big Show continue. Big Show ended up on the floor. Doctors were crowded around him. Uh, nothing happened when the show ended. There was no dark main event. John Cena just helped the Big Show to the back. So uh, that was it. You know, the show. I guess the show on TV ended with Orton standing over Cena with both belts. When the show went off the air, Cena recovered very quickly. He teased giving Orton a uh, attitude adjustment, but he slipped out, grabbed his belt, and ran to the back. Uh, so a pretty ho-hum ending to what was, I thought, overall just a bad edition of Raw. If I was watching this on TV, it would have been even worse. But at least in the arena, we you know, we had fun. We were able to amuse ourselves. But especially for a, an episode of Raw coming off a major pay-per-view like Survivor Series. And you know, you would think that they're going to build to some new storyline directions. I guess the new one is Cena vs. Orton. But uh, this was a very uninspired effort. This This just wasn't a very good show. Speaking of... Very good shows. I'm, I'm happy to say that NXT this week was a very good show and is well worth going out of your way to watch. Uh, we had Antonio Cesaro beating Yoshitatsu in the opening match. Really wasn't much of a match. Uh, there was a very, very loud We the People chant for Cesaro on his way out. Very loud. Uh, so they did this angle, though, where Byron Saxton, who sometimes does the play-by-play, this week it was Tom Phillips, so Byron was back to being the ring announcer, and you know the real Americans when they come out, they have this entrance where they have their their Gadsden flags, they call them, and they throw them into the ring as they run. So Cesaro threw his flag into the ring, and Saxton goes and he picks it up, and so Cesaro does not like this. He doesn't like Byron Saxton putting his hands on his flag, so he harasses him in the corner. Uh, he's all up in his grill, and and you know this prompts William Regal to get up from the announce desk. And run down to the ring. He pulls Byron Saxton out of the ring to safety. Uh, on commentary later on, you know, he explains. You know, Byron is is his occasional broadcast partner. He considers him a friend. And he doesn't deserve to be harassed like that. So Cesaro just glared at Regal for the rest of the match. He finished off Tatsu with the neutralizer. Cesaro versus Regal. There's a match I won't complain about. Devin Taylor was backstage. She interviewed the NXT champion Bo Dallas, who says he's excited to see those two youngsters, Sami Zayn and Adrian Neville in the main event, battle it out to determine the number one contender to his title. Uh, all of a sudden, the hippie moonchild freak, CJ Parker, stumbles into camera view. He starts mouthing off to the champion. Bo Dallas wants to know, what are you doing here? And CJ Parker tells him, oh, I didn't realize I was harsh and you're mellow, man. To which Bo Dallas replies, I didn't realize you were still employed. Me too! I hate the C.J. Parker character. I just hate it. I hate it with a passion. This leads to a non-title match between the two of them. Bo won. That's all that matters. Uh, it's a warm-up for his title match next week. If they're going to give Leo Kruger a character makeover, as it appears they've done, then surely they can give one to C.J. Parker, too. I just don't like the guy. Backstage with Devin Taylor, we get a dual promo from Paige and Emma, who still don't like each other. It's hard to pay much attention to what they're saying since I just stare at them, but I'm not complaining. Uh, After a break, we get another backstage segment with Paige. This time she's in her dressing room texting somebody, and she's annoyed when Natalia comes strolling in. Natalia wants to know what what her problem is. And Paige doesn't think that Natty cares anymore. 
since she became a big reality TV star and Natty insists, no, that's just not true. Paige, Paige was really coming off like a little brat here. She challenged Natty to a match tonight, in her own words, and said that she'll even put her NXT women's title on the line, which Natty accepts, only the match never happened. So I, I am left to assume that by tonight, she was thinking that night on the tapings, which means the match should be popping up on NXT either next week or the week after. Uh, but they never announced when, so we don't know. We had Tyler Breeze against Cassius Ono. Yes, I thought last week was it for him, but Cassius Ono was back. Very depressing to see him out there. And uh, it really wasn't much of a match, though. As Cassius Ono came down to the ring, he was... The best word I could come up with is steamroll. Like, if there was a literal steamroller in the NXT arena and it ran over Cassius Ono, I still don't think it would do as much damage and be quite as impactful as Alexander Rusev was just barreling over this poor guy. He just ran out from the back. He ran right over Cassius Ono and just left him laying and and went back to the locker room. So Cassius Ono is all dazed and confused, but he still wants to wrestle. He insists to the referee, I can go, I can go. And as soon as the referee calls for the bell, Tyler Breeze hits him with his, I think he calls it the beauty shot. It's a spinning heel kick. And he pinned him. So not much of a match. Uh, I don't know if this is it for Cassius Ono or not. It would certainly seem like they're building to a Cassius Ono-Alexander Rusev match. Maybe that's next week, and then that'll be his his send-off. Maybe Rusev will injure him. Uh, I hope so, because (laughs) every time I see this guy now, it's just very depressing. Backstage, we see the BFFs. That's the beautiful, fierce females. Summer Rae, Sasha Banks, and Charlotte. They're backstage, and Charlotte runs away because I guess they see Bailey coming. Bailey comes over. She goes, where's Charlotte? I want to confront her, because remember, it was Charlotte who who betrayed her, slapped her in the face a few weeks ago during that tag team match. And Summer Rae here was great. Summer Rae just comes off as a great bitch on television. And she tells Bailey to, quote, go eat donuts in your cat shirt, unquote. Now, at first, I couldn't figure out what the hell she was talking about, but upon going back and re-watching the segment, upon uh, closer inspection... Bailey was, in fact, wearing a shirt with cats sitting on donuts. Cats are awesome, and, and so are donuts, so that shirt is just full of wind. I'm not even sure where one might purchase a shirt with cats sitting on donuts, but that sounds like a store I would shop in. So the BFFs completely bully Bailey here. They tell her she has no friends left, to which Bailey informs them they're having a tag match next week, and, in fact, she does have friends. And then she walks off, without tipping her cap as to who her partner might be. Uh, I know it isn't, or else we probably would have heard about it from the taping results. But since she was at the Performance Center working with the girls a few weeks ago, I think it would have been awesome if it was Mickey James. You know, here these girls say, oh, you don't have any friends. And out comes Bailey with, you know, somebody like Mickey. I think that would have been kind of cool. Devin Taylor interviews Sami Zayn and Adrian Neville together backstage. Something, uh, something I wish we'd see more of on pay-per-views. If not, if not on Raw, we don't we don't have that anymore. We have the two combatants backstage together. One of my all time favorite backstage promos was actually the King of the Ring in '93. They were uh, preparing for a Bret Hart Mr. Perfect semifinal match. Both were baby faces, as these two guys are. So I guess you can't really do it with a heel and a face, but with two baby faces, you can do it. So they're backstage. Mean Gene is interviewing them. They're standing right next to each other. And Mean Gene in that promo, I love it because he's such a shit stirrer. That guy. Uh, you know, Bret Hart's trying to talk about, oh, I respect him, and, you know, I think uh, Mean Gene said, yeah, but Bret, you know, 
earlier on, you said between Mr. Perfect and Mr. Hughes, who had a, a first-round match, of the two, you'd rather face Mr. Perfect. Does that mean you think he's an easier opponent for you? And Brett's all tongue-tied, and Mr. Perfect is all you know offended by that, and they end up talking about each other. My dad can beat your dad, and uh, there was actually a lot of storyline continuity back then because this was 93, and in the promo, Mr. Perfect brings up SummerSlam from 91, that classic match at MSG when Brett beat him for the Intercontinental Belt, and Perfect's like, I owe you. I owe you for SummerSlam. Can you imagine that same kind of storyline continuity today? I don't even think they know what that is. So yeah, that that's one of my all-time favorite promos, and just watching this, it kind of reminded me of it because we don't see that anymore. You don't see... You know, when, when there's a backstage promo, it's one guy. He's usually staring either right at the announcer or he's staring off camera at cue cards, is my only guess, because nobody looks in the camera anymore. And inevitably, they get attacked by somebody. It's like the same formula every week. I miss this. I miss that style of, of backstage promo. So, uh, you know, Zayn and Neville, they said a few words. There were some hints of a heelish Sami Zayn. I don't think that they're turning him or anything, but he was being a bit of a... I don't know. He he came off as being a little uh, a little bit of a prick here during this promo. Hunico and Camacho got an upset win over the Ascension, non-title obviously, when Hunico rolled up Rick Victor. I don't find either one of these teams really interesting, so this was a low point in the show for me. They're, they're going to have to give me a reason to care about either one of these teams, uh, but I guess it's building to a tag title match. Sami Zayn and Adrian Neville. In the main event, with Bo Dallas joining Tom Phillips and Renee Young on commentary, we're told that William Regal was called to the back to deal with the Antonio Cesaro situation, whatever that situation is. As great as Bo Dallas is with his character, I'm sorry to say it did not really translate here at the announce desk. He he seemed pretty uncomfortable here. You could tell. Lots of uh, lots of highlights during the match, though. This was an awesome match. You got to go out of your way to see this match. We had, at one point, Adrian Neville leaping from the middle of the apron onto the top rope and performing a ridiculously high moonsault onto Sami Zayn on the outside. I mean, he flew. I don't know how high up he was. Uh, They call him, I guess one of his nicknames is the guy that gravity forgot. He lived up to his name in this match. That was pretty impressive. Neville went for a cartwheel back elbow at one point, but he got caught. Sami Zayn caught him in midair and turned it into a like a belly-to-back sitting powerbomb for a near fall. People were into this mat. They were on the edge of their seat. Crowd was going crazy. Finish was Neville landing the red arrow for the win, which shocked the hell out of me. I thought for sure this was setting up a Sami Zayn-Bo Dallas rematch for the title, uh, but I guess we'll have to wait a little bit longer for that. Next week, it's Neville and Dallas for the belt. This was easily a four-star match. Just fantastic stuff. Better than anything on Raw or Survivor Series. I haven't seen the last hour of SmackDown yet, so I can't comment on that. I heard there was some really good wrestling there. But as far as the pay-per-view and what we saw Monday night, nothing. It it can't even hold a candle to this match. Uh, So definitely go out of your way to check it out. Again, NXT is free every week. It doesn't cost you anything anymore like it used to. Uh, Thumbs up on the main event. NXT, you know, the other thing I want to mention here... NXT does a much better job of promoting matches than they do on any of the main shows. I mean, think about it. We got Bo Dallas defending his title against Adrian Neville next week. On the show, we had a tease for a William Regal-Antonio Cesaro match. We had Paige challenging Natalia to a match with her women's title on the line. At the same time, they've been building tension between Paige and Emma for an eventual title match between the two of them, the two big baby faces on, on NXT. Uh, Bailey 
is apparently going to have a mystery partner against Summer Rae and Sasha next week. Hunico and Camacho, even though I don't care much about this particular feud, they now have a pinfall win over the tag team champions, the Ascension, that's going to lead to a match at some, maybe as early as next week. And it looks like they're building to a Cassius Ono-Alexander Rusev match, where Rusev, as I said before, probably just crushes him, and that'll be the last we see of Ono. Uh, so they, they do a really good job of, of building from one week to the next, which is such a basic thing, but you just don't see it much on, on the main shows. The other thing NXT does better than WWE on the main shows, and I talked about this in my Layfield Report column, is the women's division. The stuff with Bailey and the, the BFFs and Paige and Emma, it's just it's so far ahead of what they're doing with the Divas on TV right now. It's just not even funny. I don't know who's responsible for the week-to-week booking of this show. I know Dusty Rhodes has a lot of influence. I think he has influence in terms of, of promos and that sort of thing. The uh, the person who writes the shows, I, for, I, I, I read his name somewhere. I just don't remember what it was. Whoever is responsible, though, for the day-to-day, week-to-week booking of this show... I got to tell you, I think they deserve a promotion and bump them up a few notches and let them start helping out on the main shows because those shows need some real direction. You know, even the stuff you look at The Miz. I mean, they don't know what they're doing from one week to the next and it makes the product suffer. And there's no reason that the same company who puts together those shows every week is the same company responsible for putting this show out and why this show should be so far ahead of what we're seeing on television. By the way, this is a piece of news that could very well have uh, an impact on NXT. Davey Richards is officially gone from Ring of Honor on his Facebook page this morning. He said, With a heavy heart, I can announce that myself and ROH have parted ways. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For good, and I will not be at final battle, please continue to support them and the incredible talent they have. Thanks for the memories. It was an amazing ride. Uh, Davey also pulled out of a planned tour for Pro Wrestling Noah in Japan, citing a neck injury. This doesn't mean WWE has offered him and Eddie Edwards a contract. They, they did have some tryouts recently uh, as the American Pitbulls, but it would appear that he thinks his chances must be good. I guess we'll find out soon. WWE's renewed focus on uh, tag teams can certainly only bode well, I would think, for his chances. If they're serious about a tag team division with real teams, not makeshift teams they just kind of slap together, I say give them a shot. I don't look at their size as a hindrance. I mean, the the American Wolves are very, very good. I I definitely think they deserve a deal. It's just a matter of whether or not Triple H and the rest of them feel the same way. Let's talk about TNA. Impact. This past week, it was a tape show from Orlando, but it was a a Thanksgiving-themed episode. And I thought it was fun. It was a fun two hours. I mean, there wasn't much in the way of really good wrestling, but that wasn't really the focus this week. 
Uh, Taz is still on commentary with Mike Tanay, in case you were wondering. Uh, you know, even when the Alliance storyline ended, remember the, 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 the invasion back in 01? At least then they even had Vince McMahon fire Paul Heyman on the air and replace him with Jerry Lawler. I guess Taz's punishment is that he gets to continue doing commentary for TNA. Heel Dixie came out to open the show. She announced that Rockstar Spud is now her new executive assistant or something. Uh, hey, at least they remembered they had Spud under contract. That's a positive. Dude is tiny, though. It's been a while since I've seen him. He, he's very small. This, this may be the best role for him. Uh, in his British accent, he proclaimed Dixie to be his queen. Next week, it's going to be Kurt Angle and Magnus in a last-man-standing match. And Jeff Hardy against Bobby Roode in a tables match. We were told that uh, Dixie spun the wheel of Dixie before the show began to determine these stipulations. We, ha- we have to take her at her word, I guess, because we never got to see her actually spin the wheel. And in the spirit of Thanksgiving, she said the winners of tonight's matches would have themselves a Thanksgiving feast at the end of the show. Winner, winner, turkey dinner, she called it. She brought out her nephew, EC3, who was up first against the returning Curry Man, who uh, I'm pretty sure was Christopher Daniels back in the costume, even though you could see hair under the mask. I don't remember, was there hair under the mask when he was Curry Man before? I, I can't remember if there was hair or not, but I assume if uh, if it was him, it was just a wig to throw us off. EC3 won with the 1%, which is basically the, the Dean Ambrose implant DDT that, again, in fairness, Derek Bateman was using first in NXT before Dean Ambrose ever did. Backstage, Robbie E. and Jesse Goddard were bullshitting with their new DJ Zima Ion. Yes, Zima is back with a new wacky haircut. He's working as their disc jockey. Eric Young and ODB come up to them and said they were going to bring back another Impact Thanksgiving tradition, the turkey suit. Somebody would end up wearing it tonight, he said. And this time he had two of them. And it would be Nor Furnham and Dewey Barnes, the two jobbers EC3 has beaten a few dozen times already. They would be wrestling the tag team champions with the losers wearing the turkey suit. Lady Tappa beat Velvet Sky with the TKO for the pin. Not much to it. The Bromans... Beat Nor Furnham and Dewey Barnes in the turkey suit match. Zima Ion. Zima Ion now has his DJ set up at ringside and plays this loud air horn sound effect before introducing Robbie and Jesse. Like, yo, 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 company got mad at me. Like, for real, yo. Because my girl set up a GoFundMe to help me pay for my medical bills because I was totally ill. Get it? I was ill. That's my 1990s white boy trying to be black vanilla ice impression. Not a very good one, I admit. The jobbers put the turkey suits on after the match. They started flapping their arms, and and they were really getting into it. And uh, for whatever reason, this made the bromans angry. Shouldn't they be happy they didn't end up in those suits? They are the same Friends of AJ video they aired two weeks ago with him talking to Joaquin Roldan in Mexico with AAA. So they cut to heel Dixie backstage who is infuriated that these videos keep airing. Somehow, somebody's getting these videos on the air. She can't figure out how. She says AJ has one week to return her intellectual property to her or else. So they're already bringing AJ back. The title tournament isn't even over yet. I think they're about to shit the bet on this angle. Keep him out a little bit longer. It's working. The the fans were shouting her down when, when Dixie came out at the beginning of the show. 
they were shouting her down with AJ chants when she came out to to open the program. So I'd keep it going a little bit longer, at least until you crown a new champion and then bring him back to confront you know Magnus or whoever it is. Then we had a comedy segment taped earlier in the day in a chapel somewhere. The Aces and Eights Funeral. I'm upset I wasn't invited. I would have loved to have paid my respects. Magnus was there checking texts on his phone, looking completely disinterested. Samoa Joe was chowing down on what appeared to be a bagel. Eric Young was sitting with Mike Tanay, who inexplicably was wearing sunglasses indoors. Eric appeared to be crying, which seemed to confuse Tanay. The minister asked that if anybody had anything positive to say about Aces and Eights, speak now. And suddenly Mr. Anderson popped up out of the casket. He took to the podium. He said he had been trapped inside this organization for over a year. And they had been responsible for many, 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 many segments on the show. And then they cut to Mike Tanay, who shook his head in agreement. I thought that was hilarious. This seemed like a, a knock on Eric Bischoff, and I loved it. Anderson thanked Bully Ray... And, or rather, Bully Ray's ex-wife and father-in-law, I should say, for sending over a deli plate, which they showed us consisted of ham, turkey, cheese, and some cherry tomatoes, with the uh, the buns to go along with it, of course, to make a sandwich. He nodded at Samoa Joe, who held up his deli roll in approval. Kurt Angle came to the podium next and said that he had many friends in the group, including D'Lo Brown and Wes Briscoe. He talked about the funny way that D'Lo would move his head back and forth, and then he pulled out a bobblehead doll to show us before tossing it into the casket, wishing him well in his next life. Samoa Joe was up next, still enjoying his food from the deli plate. Well, he, he definitely doesn't look like he's missed many meals of late. I think we can all agree on that. He pulled out a six-pack of beer. He started handing out bottles to everybody in attendance, and he nearly gave one to Kurt Angle, but then thought better of it and stopped short. That was great. Uh, someone sent me an email asking me if I thought it was in poor taste that they would do that. I thought it was fucking hilarious. He did the same thing with the minister who went to hand him a, a beer, and then he thought better of it. And then they all saluted the aces and eights. May you ride your mopeds to the shores of Valhalla, said Samoa Joe, and they all drank. Tanay and his sunglasses were next. He said he was there to place Taz's smelly vest in the casket and Brooke Tessmacher's booty shorts, which had somehow found their way under the announce desk. He put the vest in the casket, then he looked around to make sure nobody was looking, and he stuffed Brooks' booty shorts into his pocket. See, Tanay's a creeper. I knew it. Eric Young stepped to the podium, said he uh, shed a tear for the members of Aces and Eights who never got to wear the turkey suit that he pulled out. And uh, he put the turkey suit in the casket, at which point Eric Young began sobbing uncontrollably. They had to pull him away from the casket. He was so dejected by leaving his turkey suit behind. Anderson then pulled out the dreaded Aces and Aids ball-peen hammer. He teased putting it in the casket and then said he was going to keep it because, in his own words, it's a perfectly good hammer. Could come in handy at some point. Suddenly, Bully Ray walked into the chapel wearing a hoodie and some sunglasses. He told Anderson, You raped me of everything, and for that I will never forgive you. You better sleep with one eye open in the best interest of yourself and the best interest of your pregnant wife. You all look at death as the last sleep, he said. Well, I look at it as the final awakening. And with that, he took his exit. This was the best Aces and Eights segment they've ever produced. I love this. See, to me, this is how you do comedy in wrestling. Compare this to that wretched Miz TV segment from last Monday, or Titus O'Neil throwing up all over the place on SmackDown. 
I'm sure Vince McMahon got a good laugh out of that. If you're going to do comedy, at least do it right and make it funny. Thumbs up. I say thumbs up to TNA. I, I laughed out loud at this. I thought this was great. Uh, although I must say, I, I heard that uh, Brodus Clay referred to himself on SmackDown as a main event player. Now that's high comedy. That may have been the funniest thing I heard all week. Team Rude against Team Angle in a traditional Survivor Series elimination match. Well, you know, if WWE isn't going to do Survivor Series matches on Thanksgiving anymore, somebody has to. May as well be TNA. It was Bobby Roode, Christopher Daniels, Kazarian, and Chris Sabin against Kurt Angle, James Storm, Gunner, and Magnus. Came down to Angle all by himself against all four heels. Magnus got taken away with a knee injury that I assume we later find out was a ruse because he's turning heel, and uh, that's what heels do. They teased further dissension between James Storm and Gunner after Storm got pinned right by the babyface corner, right in front of Gunner, and he did nothing to break it up. This is, uh, this is after throwing in the towel on James Storm's match with Bobby Roode last week, so Gunner is, is certainly not endearing himself to his tag team partner. I liked the match. You know, I thought it was good. It wasn't great, but I hated the finish. It had Kurt Angle grab a steel chair. He just starts whacking all the heels. He gets disqualified. I know it was four-on-one, but at least try. Try to fight back fairly, you know? So Bobby Roode now is crowing about how he just beat Kurt Angle for the third straight time. Dixie and EC3... They left early on uh, Carter's private jet. They left Rockstar Spud all by himself in charge of the show. And the uh, show-closing Thanksgiving feast. This was like that uh, grand finale match of Survival that WWE did 20 years ago at Survivor Series with all the winners coming back out at the end of the show. Only instead of wrestling, here they're eating turkey. Uh, We had Rude, Daniels, Kazarian, Sabin, who came out with Velvet Sky, Lady Tappa, who came out with Gail Kim, and the Bromans with Zima Ion. All the winners, they came out for the big feast. Ion was the odd man out. There was no chair, so he just stood until Bobby Roode saw that Velvet Sky was there with Chris Sabin. And Velvet Sky, she lost her match earlier in the night. Bobby Roode wanted her out of there. Chris Sabin acted like he was going to stand up to Roode, and then instead he said, you know what, you're right, hit the bricks. He told Velvet Sky he would bring her a doggy bag, and then Bobby Roode told Zima Ion, take her seat. So now everybody had a seat. And they all went around the horn talking about what they're thankful for. Bobby Roode said he was thankful for the real Thanksgiving, which took place in Canada last month. He was thankful for beating Kurt Angle three times, and he said he was going to be the next TNA world champion, which brought out Kurt Angle and the rest of the Babyface Brigade. And this resulted in a massive food fight to end the show. Wouldn't be Thanksgiving without a food fight. And then they all drank beer, except for Kurt, and the show ended. So, there was some stupid stuff on this show. I'm not a fan of the Eric Young turkey costume crap. But, overall, it was fun. I thought the Aces and Eights funeral was great. Rest in peace. Time for the mailbag. If you have questions, please email them to me, thesolomonster, at gmail.com. That includes audio questions. You can include them in MP3 format as an attachment. 30 seconds, give or take, is a, a good length. And always, always, always include the text of your question in the body of the email, along with your name and where you're from. I, I at least want your name. There are people who write in with no name, and uh, don't do that. Include include your name and, and where you're from, if you can, and that's for any question you send in. Adam M., after recovering from my turkey coma, I was thinking about Starcade and realized that we hit the 30-year anniversary of the first Starcade. My question to you is, what is your favorite Starcade match or moment? I, I was not a big NWA fan back in the mid-80s, you know, when Starcade was probably at its peak, but I have come to see most of them now, 
And I would say that the Ric Flair Vader match from Star K93, I think that was probably my favorite. That would have been the perfect match for Flair to retire on. Uh, it's comical to look back on it now, of course, but if, if Flair was going to go out, that would have been a great match for him to go out on. I'm also a fan of anything Sting and Vader did back in early 90s WCW. I thought that's one of the more... I shouldn't say underrated. Maybe there's a lot of people out there who agree with me. I think it's underrated. I think they had great matches and and had one of the best feuds in that company. But the Sting-Vader-King of Cable match the year before that in 92, uh, I thought was also quite good. I I think the uh, the Magnum TA Tully Blanchard I quit cage match from 85. Again, I wasn't a fan of their product back then, but I've gone back and watched the match. Uh, that was pretty badass. Very violent, too. It's a, a very violent match, but very good. So th- those are the three, I think, that would come to mind. Chad writes in, well, over the past five or so years, I can't think of many great WWE feuds, which leads me to this conclusion. Do you think that the Randy Orton-Kofi Kingston feud is in the top five best feuds of the last five years? I can't think of many more uh, over the last five years that had the intensity of this one, plus the feud included a classic moment as well with Kofi's boom drop in Madison Square Garden. What are your top five feuds of the last five years. Are there even five great feuds in the last five years? That depends on your definition of great. You're talking intensity? You're talking wrestling? I mean, it's... Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. It's going to be different for everybody. I don't think there have been. I had to struggle just to come up with three. Uh, Now, here's the thing. Five years takes us back to 2008. If we're being really, really nitpicky here, then the Shawn Michaels-Chris Jericho feud was already over by December of that year, so that wouldn't count. If you do count that one, then it's absolutely on the list. If it's not, uh, here's what I came up with. You know, Shawn Michaels-Undertaker goes without saying. I loved it, especially the build-up for the first match, uh, and the match itself is my favorite all-time WrestleMania match. Randy Orton and Christian is on my list. Their matches in in 2011, every single one of the matches they had that year, on pay-per-view, on TV, I mean, at worst, they were very good. At best, they were great. They were the best stuff in the company at the time. Uh, they, they Those two guys could not have a bad match together. And uh, and then there's John Cena and CM Punk. That, that would be the best feud of the past five years, going back to their Money in the Bank match, where Punk first won the title. And all of their other matches, right through the one they had on Raw earlier this year with the pile driver, uh, they have a chemistry together that very few top guys have. You know, Rock and Austin had it in their era. Punk and Cena have that in this era. Uh, but that's it. You know, truly great feuds. That's the best I can come up with. Orton and Kofi. Orton and Kofi had promise, but they killed it off way too quickly. I mean, it was over in like a month. So I don't see how you can really call that a great feud. Michael from Los Angeles, California. My question is regarding finishers in wrestling today. I recently read Bob Holly's book, and in one of the last chapters, he brings up that in wrestling today, you have a lot of guys kicking out of each other's finishing maneuvers. Scott Hall was on Colt Cabana's podcast recently and mentioned kicking out of finishers uh, as being a bad idea as well. What is your view? Is this too much of an old-school mentality? 
I'm not saying no wrestler should ever kick out of another's finish, but maybe it should be toned down a bit and it could help get some guys over. I agree on on toning it down. Uh, you know, that was one of the things that just made Rock versus John Cena at WrestleMania this year so ridiculous. Uh, and why I'm a bigger fan of their first match from Miami. I lost count this year of how many attempted attitude adjustments and rock bottoms they went for. Go watch the last five or six minutes of that. I mean, it was ridiculous. It got to the point where the fa- you look at the fans and the fans are like, oh, God, enough already. Like, it, it was like a crutch. They kept going back. They, they couldn't come up with anything better. So it was like, oh, okay, attitude adjustment. No, he slips out. Rock bottom. No, he slips out. So let me try your move, and then you can try my move. And it just went on and on. And it's one of the things I absolutely hated about Rock vs. Cena at WrestleMania 29 this year. Um, but in the same respect, you know, it can work. When you save it for certain situations, it works. You know, Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker, which I just said, their first match at WrestleMania 25 is my favorite all-time WrestleMania match. Because the match itself I thought was great, but the way the fans got into it... Uh, You know, a big part of it, though, was them kicking out of moves. So, you know, is that hypocritical of me? Maybe. But I I just think in that situation it worked. Because you had this meeting between these two legendary guys, a match that we hadn't seen in a number of years, and they they felt they had to make it epic. So Undertaker would choke slam him, he kicked out. Undertaker went for the last ride, he kicked out. The story they were telling was, what does Undertaker have to do to put this guy away? He gave him a tombstone. He kicked out. Now, it seems like every year now, Undertaker's opponent kicks out of the tombstone. But it worked in 09 because, I mean, I don't know. Did Edge kick out in, in WrestleMania 24? Did Batista kick out of WrestleMania 23? I Honestly, I can't remember. It just felt like when Shawn Michaels kicked out of the tombstone at WrestleMania 25, people went ape shit. Like it was a big deal. And they kind of went crazy for it when, when uh, you know, Triple H did it to Undertaker at WrestleMania 27. But now it's like, you know, when he would tombstone, he tombstone CM Punk at Mania this year. And, you know, it was good for a near fall, but it doesn't have the same impact. I just think for that first Michaels-Undertaker-WrestleMania match, it worked. But I agree, it's overdone. Uh, it kind of defeats the whole purpose of a, of a finishing move being a finishing move. And, uh, yeah, I think, I, I agree. I don't think it's too old school. I think they need to tone it down a little bit. Jacob from St. Louis, I recently rewatched the best of the King of the Ring DVD set and was especially thrilled with the street fight between Shane McMahon and Kurt Angle. My question is, what was the buildup for this particular match? I don't remember exactly how it came to be booked. Do you remember? Uh, that was a great match, Shane McMahon and Kurt Angle. Just a brutal brawl. Uh, what happened is that Angle had just beaten Chris Benoit in a match at the, I want to say, Judgment Day pay-per-view to get back his Olympic gold medals that Benoit had stolen. So on Raw the next night, Kurt decided to reenact the Olympic ceremony where, you know, when you win an Olympic gold medal, you're up on the podium, bronze, silver, gold. He had the whole podium out there. He was going to reenact the whole thing. And Shane McMahon interrupted. And he interrupted to talk about WCW. He was talking about how, you know, WCW is starting up real soon, which had been the plan before that Booker T-Buff Bagwell match caused Vince McMahon to scrap the whole thing. They were going to run WCW as a separate TV show, and, you know, they were gearing up for the start. And this is proof. You got Shane out there talking about it. And Shane ended up calling him a wussy or something, and I think Kurt gave him an angle slam. 
and that's what got the feud going. So that was that was the segment that kind of kicked the whole thing off. And it's kind of weird now to to think about it because at that time Kurt was a heel. Shane, there were still fans booing Shane a little bit because they weren't fans of WCW, but Shane was a babyface. And only a few months later, the roles were reversed. Kurt was a babyface, right? He was wrestling uh, Steve Austin for the title at SummerSlam. And Shane was the heel. He was the heel uh, member of the alliance. Him and Stephanie were, were kind of running that whole thing. Justin from Puerto Rico, my question is regarding wrestling entrance themes. I was watching the new history of WWE DVD, and the story came up about Sergeant Slaughter being the first person to use entrance music and how Vince McMahon loved it and followed suit. Is there any truth to this story and any other details you can provide about how theme music came to be? I'm pretty sure Gorgeous George is is the first person uh, known to ever use entrance music in pro wrestling. Uh, And I remember this because when Randy Savage died... Lanny Poffo talked about, you know, Savage used Pomp and Circumstance as his theme music. And Lanny Poffo talked about how in later years, you know, Randy felt really guilty about using the music because it was Gorgeous George who used it first. And he almost felt like he was stealing it and, and people would credit Randy Savage, which I think they do. I think if you ask people, who do you associate Pomp and Circumstance with, Gorgeous George is not going to be their first answer. So he was right to feel that way. Um, but... Yeah, Pomp and Circumstance is what Gorgeous George, and that goes back to the 50s. So this notion that Slaughter was the first person to use theme music, it, it, it may well be true that in terms of, of WWF, he may have been the first. I don't even know if that's completely accurate, but this notion that he was the first to introduce it is is not true. Alex writes in, whatever happened to Ahmed Johnson's massive push back in the mid-90s? If I remember correctly, he won the Intercontinental title shortly after he debuted. And won some kind of battle royal to earn a shot at the WWE Championship. He seemed to be super over. And as a teenager, I was extremely excited to see him possibly win both belts. He then disappeared with an injury, and I barely even remember him coming back. What happened with him that caused WWE to stop his massive push? He won the Intercontinental title about eight or nine months after his debut, so it wasn't right away. But yeah, he he won a battle royal on Raw to uh, get a WWE title shot which I think the title match was supposed to be on Raw the night after SummerSlam. So it would have been him against Shawn Michaels, which is kind of an interesting matchup. But what happened is he suffered some uh, pretty serious kidney problems that they attributed to a kick from Farouk. Farouk, uh, Ron Simmons, had just debuted in the company, and he kicked Ahmed Johnson in the ribcage, I think his first night in. I don't think that actual uh, that kick actually caused the injuries, but in storyline they kind of chalked it up to that. Uh, so he was out for a good you know four months, five months or so, and he came back. He feuded with Farouk. He turned heel. It was like six months later, so he just went through this period where he really wasn't doing much. I know he was in some sort of street fight with him and LOD. I think against the Nation at WrestleMania. He feuded with the nation for so long, it was kind of weird when he joined them. You know, he turned on The Undertaker, he joined the nation, and then he was supposed to wrestle The Undertaker for the WWF Championship at the Canadian Stampede pay-per-view, which is one of the best pay-per-views that the company's ever produced. Uh, and it was a short show, too. It was only about two hours. But he was supposed to wrestle for the title. He got injured again, and they replaced him in the match with Vader. So at that point, it kind of became a running joke about how injury-prone the guy was. He was always getting hurt. I remember him coming back from one injury, and then he hurt his hand. I think it was on, like, the steel ring steps. He think he broke his hand, and he was out again. 
And he was hurting other people, too. So he got this rep for being dangerous to work with and very stiff. Uh, nobody wanted to work with him. I don't know what he's up to these days. I think I remember reading he went back to school. He got his degree in criminal justice, I think. Uh, he's as big as a house, though. I mean, he, he looks almost like a different person. He got so large. I mean, the last picture I saw of him, he looked like he was close to 400 pounds. Uh, so I don't know if he's gotten his weight down a little bit, but uh, that's what he's up to these days. He's not wrestling, as far as I know. He, you know, He's one of those guys who was getting the super push, and you wonder, had he not gotten hurt? I, I don't know that he would have gotten the title. In fact, I'm almost sure he wouldn't have. Uh, I just can't see them taking the title off Shawn Michaels and putting it on this new guy. Uh, but he was way up there in the pecking order, and then he got hurt, and he got hurt again, and hurt a few other people, and, and that was pretty much the end of his push at that point. Louis from Los Angeles, regarding WWE and the current Daniel Bryan debacle, is it possible, better yet, would I be giving too much credit to them if I thought that maybe they pulled the plug on Bryan in the WWE title picture because they see how over he is and want to save it for WrestleMania? I've heard CM Punk's name winning the Rumble, but I wouldn't be surprised to see Daniel Bryan win it and go on to WrestleMania as the babyface. It's possible, you know, and I could see Daniel Bryan winning the Rumble. In fact, that's the way I would go. More than even CM Punk, I think Daniel Bryan coming in in an early number. Uh, I wouldn't do number one just because it's so cliche, but you know, have Bryan come in at like number four or something like that and just last until the end. I think I absolutely would support that idea. Uh, but I, I use Lex Luger as a cautionary tale here. Uh, not that I'm suggesting Lex Luger was as over with the fans as Daniel Bryan is because he, he wasn't, uh, nor was he as good in the ring. He certainly looked better. He looked like a million bucks. Uh, but the Lex Luger uh, example, it goes back to the summer of 93, right? Hogan left, which left a huge void in terms of that top babyface they could build the company around. Bret Hart was the de facto top babyface, but I guess you know Vince McMahon was looking for somebody bigger, probably more muscular, who could look the part and take Hulk Hogan's place. So they turned Lex Luger, who had been this narcissistic heel. I mean, that was his name. They called him the narcissist. He had been a heel, knocking people out with a with a steel plate in his forearm. And overnight, they turned him babyface. He showed up on the USS Intrepid. He body-slammed Yokozuna or, or kind of, you know, hip-checked him. And uh, went on this bus tour, the Lex Express. I mean, they went all out. They really did. They went all out to make this guy the all-American babyface. And they made the SummerSlam main event, in a lot of ways, feel like a WrestleMania main event. And then, as the story goes, Vince McMahon decided, you know what? I want to hold off on this until WrestleMania next year. Let, let's let's give Luger the big title win, not at SummerSlam, but let's do it at WrestleMania. So they had Luger win the match by knocking out Yokozuna. He knocked him out of the ring, and Yokozuna got counted out. And I still remember it was one of the most bizarre things that... SummerSlam in 93 goes off the air with confetti coming down, all the baby faces come out, the Steiner brothers, Tatanka, Randy Savage, they all have Lex Luger up on their shoulders, he's got like balloons are falling, he's got the American flag waving, it's like they won the war, but yet Yokozuna, he's still the champion, I thought it was all about winning the title, but they made it seem, and it certainly seemed like he won the title, but they went out of their way to never mention that. So it's kind of this weird psychological trick where they wanted you to think that he won the title, but he really didn't. And I think it was a mistake, obviously, looking back on it, because Luger ended up never winning the championship. What happened is the fans wanted to see Bret Hart in that role. Bret Hart got even more over uh, 
they did the little experiment at the end of the Royal Rumble, which is what that was, by the way. They had both guys go out at the same time. They did these false finishes where one referee had Luger's music play, and they play, you know, they raised Luger's hand, and he got a decent response, but it was kind of lukewarm. There were a lot of boos. Then another referee came over, I think Earl Hebner, and said, no, 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 Bret Hart won. They played Bret's music, and the crowd went nuts. So clearly, Bret Hart was the crowd favorite way more than Lex Luger was. And I think that sealed Luger's fate. I think Vince realized, all right, well, you know, Bret's, Bret's more over. Bret's our guy. And Bret Hart ended up winning the title. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. At WrestleMania. So, yeah, there's been this urban myth, this urban legend for many years where Lex Luger was in a bar in New York, like right before WrestleMania, and he got drunk and he was, you know, mouthing off about how I'm going to win the title and he was giving away the finish and it pissed off Vince McMahon. Uh, Luger's told the story before. It never happened because Luger wasn't even in New York. You know, he was with his family. Uh, so that's all just a myth. What happened is they waited too long. And and sometimes you got to strike when the iron's hot. And that's kind of what I fear with Daniel Bryan. Now, Bryan's a lot more over than Luger was. And I think come next year, he's still going to be over. Will he, will he be over at the level he's at now? Will people be yesing the way they are now? I don't know. Maybe somebody else comes along, or Roman Reigns, there's another big baby face. I mean, who knows? And and they get the spot instead. And I think that's the risk that you run, where SummerSlam, they did the big you know money in the bank cash-in, and that's fine. But then to screw over Brian the way they did at all those pay-per-views, you know, you screw over the guy so many times, and then you move him out of the main event picture, it's like... In people's minds, in the mind of the average fan who may not know any of this, you know, read stories on the internet and all that, I mean, they're looking at this and, you know, perception is reality here. And they're saying, well, I guess Daniel Bryan, he's good, but he's not at that level. Randy Orton's at that level. Big Show's at that level. Maybe even CM Punk is at that level, but this guy isn't. And I hope that doesn't happen because Daniel Bryan, he's really good. You know, he, he deserves better than that. I don't look at it as kissing his ass or anything like that. You know, the people who say that are are just haters, you know, and they just want to complain for the sake of complaining. Uh, I think Daniel Bryan, uh, you know, he deserves a, a legitimate shot. Maybe he'll get it, maybe he won't. I don't know. But it's the difference between SummerSlam and Survivor Series. I think if you did something like that at Survivor Series, you're, you're, you're cl- closer to WrestleMania where you could probably get away with it. But like with Luger in 93... And it was probably less of a problem back then because you didn't have as many damn shows. It's it's a lot worse now. But SummerSlam, you you I mean that's you've got a long ways to go until you get to WrestleMania. A lot can happen between SummerSlam and Mania. That's a long stretch. 
And sometimes you just got to go with your hot hand. I think had they put the title on Luger at SummerSlam, then they could have, you know, booked him however they wanted to book him. Maybe he would have been more successful. Maybe they could have built to a, a really big match between him and Brett at WrestleMania and have Brett beat him for the championship, you know, babyface versus babyface. Uh, we'll never know. With Brian, it remains to be seen. I don't know that uh, Brian's getting a title shot at WrestleMania, but as far as winning the Royal Rumble, I'd be in favor of it. I think uh, I think the fans would be in favor of it too. Ray Vaughn from New York City. If Marty Jannetty wasn't into drugs and alcohol, do you think he would have been as successful as Shawn Michaels, and do you think he could have had a run with the WWE Championship? No. I don't think Marty Jannetty would have had a run with the title. And I don't think he would have been as successful as Shawn Michaels. Shawn Michaels had a certain, um, you know, he had a certain intangible that that Jannetty just didn't have. He was a better promo. He was a better bump taker. All those things that made Shawn Michaels fun to watch. I mean, Jannetty was a great wrestler. He was really, really good. But I never looked at him as being on that level. And, And the drugs and the alcohol and the partying and all that... It just made it worse, where he would he would be in one company, he would fuck up, get fired, they'd bring him back because he was a really good wrestler. But then they didn't trust him. So that's why every time they would bring Janetti back, you'll notice they never gave him any really meaningful push because they didn't trust the guy. So, you know, they gave him the Intercontinental title that one time, and they took it off him the next month. It was just meant to be a brief angle. And, you know, he had, a, he had a good run at different points. You know, him and the 1-2-3 kid were the tag team champions. Then they stuck him in that awful new Rockers team with Leaf Cassidy, you know, Al Snow. Janetti uh, didn't last that much longer after that because he had a horrible track record. He didn't last very long in many of the places that he went. But I still don't think he ever would have gotten to the same level as Sean did. Rayvon's second question, was there a legit heat at one point between Jerry Lawler and Bret Hart? I think it was uh, during the time that Lawler, back in 93, was cracking jokes on, on Brett's mother and father, especially his mother. Uh, Brett was bothered by that. I think Lawler has even talked about this before. Brett was, he was letting himself get bothered by what was essentially a work. Obviously, Lawler wasn't trying to be really mean-spirited towards Stu and Helen. I always got a kick out of Lawler's jokes. I thought they were great. They were so entertaining. You know, when he would say, you know, Helen Hart is so old, she remembers when the Dead Sea was just sick, and just all the the one-liners and everything else. Uh, The funny part is that Brett's mother loved it. Helen Hart, apparently, she didn't have a problem with it at all. She thought it was very entertaining, and Brett was the one who was bothered by it. This comes from Rob. On one of your recent sound-offs, you mentioned the wonky blade job that Vince McMahon did on himself once during a pay-per-view match. That probably would have been the, uh, the Buried Alive match with The Undertaker at Survivor Series. Do you consider blading to be a skill or art, and do you believe it will become a lost art for future performers because of WWE's current no-blood policy in matches? I can't imagine they're handing out blades and slicing wrestlers open as part of Blading 101 over at the Performance Center. Yeah, I would think not. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think over time it probably will be a lost art because you've got a lot of veterans who are still in wrestling, and 10, 20 years from now they're going to be gone. They're going to be retired. They're going to die as they get older. Um, and I think you very well could see the end of the art, if you want to call it that, of, of the blade job. And maybe that's a good thing. See, I'm still a proponent that blood, selectively, blood in matches really helps the match. If it's a really violent kind of match, a hardcore match, if it's a big blow-off to like a really intense blood feud, the key word there is blood. Blood works. I wouldn't be cutting people open every month. So I would think that 
you, there's going to be somebody who would at least show them, you know, how to do it. But you, you're right. I mean, I, I can't see them teaching them that at the performance center. So you're going to have all these new guys coming up from NXT, and at some point, it's just going to die off. And you know, in the long run, it's probably for the better. I mean, just the idea that you know, slicing yourself open, self mutilation, it's kind of barbaric. But that's just the way it was done. And now you look at guys like Dusty Rhodes, and oh my God, I mean, you, if you really look at their foreheads, it's just disgusting. <laughs> it's just really, it's revolting when you look at it. Uh, but hey, they say the forehead, the scar tissue there, I mean, it's the it's the best place to, to blade because it heals. But I guess the more you do it, I mean, you see some of these guys, Abdullah the Butcher, I mean, it's, it's just like, uh, ugh, just to look at some of these guys now all these years later. Uh, but yeah, I think I think we're seeing the the death of of the blade job. It's not going to happen overnight, but like I said, ten fifteen years from now, I don't know. You're going to have a lot of these guys coming up, and if you hand them a blade, they may look at it and go, "What do you want me to do with this?" You know, I already shaved, <laughs> so I think that's just how it is. And finally, this comes to us from someone simply known as the disgruntled fan. It's a comment. I wanted to read it here. He says, I have only recently begun listening to your podcast, which I must say is an audio pleasure for me in these difficult times. You see, my life was turned upside down after watching SummerSlam in 2006. I fell into a vegetative state. I am now seven years later trying to piece my life back together and fill in the gaps that have passed me by. The rise of Facebook, the collapse of Lehman Brothers, and some guy named Justin Bieber. I have taken great comfort knowing that some things are still the same, which has helped me greatly adapt to my life in 2013. Eminem is still topping the music charts. Superman is still on at the cinema. And John Cena is still feuding with Randy Orton. Point well taken. Something tells me this guy didn't really fall into a vegetative state. Although if he did, you should know that The Undertaker did also. You should be thankful you were in a vegetative state for that whole storyline. This week in wrestling history, we're going back 40 years to December 1st, 1973. Stan Stasiak beat Pedro Morales on this date to win the WWWF Heavyweight Championship in a match with a pretty wonky finish where most of the fans didn't even realize they had just seen a title change. Both guys' shoulders were down on the mat. Referee counted three. I would assume Stasiak got a shoulder up at the last minute. They never announced Stasiak, who was the father of meat, by the way, Sean Stasiak. They never announced him as the new champion. They only said, let's hear it for a great champion, Pedro Morales. They did this for fear of inciting a riot in the crowd if they knew the title had changed hands. And Morales had the title for 1,027 days. Stasiak, he held it for nine days before dropping it to Bruno San Martino, who would go on to hold the title for 1,237 days. That, my friends, is what you call a transitional champion. 28 years ago this week, on November 25th, 1985, it was the first screw job in Madison Square Garden. Wendy Richter was the women's champion. She was very popular back then. I mean, she was the diva. If they had divas back then, she was it. And a big part of her success, you know, Cindy Lauper was a big celebrity back then. They brought Cindy Lauper, and that was around the time of the first WrestleMania. But Cindy Lauper became her manager for a while. She would come out with her for matches and stuff. And it was a big, it was part of that whole rock and wrestling connection. And Hulk Hogan was the face of that, and the female face of that was Wendy Richter. So she was riding this big wave of popularity, and her contract was coming due. 
This was in November of 85. And, you know, she wanted more money. She wanted a better deal. And so she basically got the, the contract that was presented to her but refused to sign it. She said she wanted to talk to her lawyers before she signed anything. And at that point, WWF hatched a plan to take the title off her at Madison Square Garden. She was going to be wrestling another female wrestler by the name of Spider Lady, who is a mass wrestler, usually played by a lady by the name of Penny Mitchell. She was managed by the fabulous Moolah. And she was going to defend her title against Spider Lady and beat her. That was the plan, as far as she knew. When it came time for the match, she found out very quickly that it wasn't Penny Mitchell under the mask, it was the fabulous Moolah, who normally managed Spider Lady. On this night, she was the Spider Lady. And so that was kind of odd. So, you know, they had a match. And during the match, the referee, you know, he was, the referee was acting a little weird, too. He made a lot of very suspect counts. And there was a small package spot in the end. The referee counted three, even though Wendy Richter kicked out. So Richter was just furious at this point. She ran over. She yanked the mask off Mula to reveal that it was the fabulous Mula. Mula didn't exactly stop her from doing it either. And Mula paraded around the ring with the women's championship belt. And they announced her as the new champion. And Wendy Richter was shooting on her. She was throwing kicks at her. Mula wasn't selling anything. She was her poker face and she was just standing there no matter what Richter did which only pissed her off even more and she grabbed the belt she tried to hit Moolah with the belt she threw it down she stormed out of the ring and that was it for Wendy Richter in the WWF she never made another appearance she never made amends with the company until many many years later she was finally inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2010 so think about that 1985 to 2010 that's a pretty big stretch a hell of a lot longer than Bret Hart And uh, Vince McMahon had their split before he came back to the company. So before Montreal, there was the first screw job in that company, and it was back in 1985. Also, 28 years ago this week, on November 28, 1985, Starcade, The Gathering, was held from two different locations. One was the Greensboro Coliseum, the other was the Omni in Atlanta. Magnum TA beat Tully Blanchard in an I Quit Steel Cage match to win the U.S. title when... uh, Magnum tried, uh, he was actually, he had a piece of chair, I think it was, that had been broken off. And Magnum earlier in the match almost had his eye put out. You know, Tully was trying to spike his eye with this this sharp object. And now Magnum TA had Tully Blanchard down, and he was just carving up his forehead. He was bleeding, he was screaming. Finally, you know, he could take no more. Tully Blanchard said, yes, 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 I quit. And Magnum won the U.S. title. It's it's one of the all-time great matches and, and one of the more memorable matches in Starcade history. Uh, also on this show, Dusty Rhodes defeated Ric Flair to win the NWA World Heavyweight title, or at least so people thought. Uh, he pinned Flair. Show ended with people thinking that Dusty had just won the belt. That weekend on television, it was announced that because Ole Anderson had interfered in the match, uh, which the referee did not see, the match should have ended on a disqualification. It was declared a DQ, and the belt was given back to Ric Flair. So it was the very first Dusty finish, as it would come to be known. And it came to be known as that because when Dusty Rosa became Booker, he overused that finish to the point that they killed towns with it. They actually killed business in certain places by using that finish so much that when they would go back, they did no business. So uh, the Dusty finish is fine in certain situations, but when you overuse it, yeah. People don't like that very much. In fact, we've got a dusty finish 
Back in September at Night of Champions, when Daniel Bryan beat Randy Orton, everybody thought he won the belt. And then we found out the next night that, in fact, he did not win the belt, and they took it right back from him. 27 years ago this week, on November 27, 1986, Starcade, Night of the Skywalkers. It was dubbed Night of the Skywalkers because the show featured a scaffold match pitting the Road Warriors against the Midnight Express. Road Warrior Hawk wrestled that match with a broken leg, and you would have never known watching the match, but the dude was either double tough or double dumb for wrestling on a scaffold 20 feet above the ring with a broken leg. This is the match where Jim Cornette blew out both his knees in his spot. He was supposed to fall from the scaffold, and Big Bubba Rogers, better known as the Big Boss Man, he would, he would catch him. He was standing down below. The plan was he would catch Cornette as he fell. Well, picture Cornette hanging from the scaffolding. He's holding on for dear life. His legs are just swaying back and forth. And I guess he zigged when he should have zagged. And he's lucky that his legs didn't snap in half. He let go. Bubba didn't catch him. And Cornette landed with his legs fully extended. Just crashed right down to the mat. Uh, he tore all the ligaments in his knee that keep it attached to the femur and the tibia and all that. If you made a list of the top 10 or 15 pro wrestling injuries that aired on TV, the worst or the best, depending on how you look at it, this would be on that list. Uh, scaffold matches suck. You, you get a bunch of guys who are just terrified of falling off. It's this really narrow platform, and they just sort of stand there, you know, and they throw punches, they throw kicks. Some of them are probably afraid of heights. Uh, I never really saw the appeal in them. They're just way too dangerous, and they're not exciting. 26 years ago this week, on November 26, 1987, the first and only head-to-head pay-per-view war between WWF and NWA took place. Uh, the decision was made to turn Starcade into the first real competitor to uh, the World Wrestling Federation. WWF countered by presenting the very first Survivor Series. That's how Survivor Series came about. It was because of this war, this competition. They wanted a big event to to go up against the NWA. And WWF had a very impressive track record as far as their pay-per-view shows. You know, WrestleMania three was on pay-per-view in select systems, and that was the biggest event of its kind up until that point. Uh, a lot of cable systems naturally sided with Vince McMahon. They said, okay, we're going to run your show and not Starcade." Uh... After this was all, and of course Survivor Series did a lot better, did a bigger number than Starcade did, but when this was over, the cable company stepped in and said, nah, this is not going to happen again, and they would not allow the two companies to air pay-per-views head-to-head like that, hence why Starcade was moved to December the following year. 22 years ago this week, on November 27, 1991, Survivor Series, with Ric Flair's WWF pay-per-view debut. And uh, also on this show, Ric Flair not only wrestled in the opening Survivor Series match where he was the sole survivor, he came back out later in the show. He helped The Undertaker beat Hulk Hogan to win the World Wrestling Federation Championship. Uh, this this pay-per-view was also one giant commercial for their Tuesday in Texas experiment the week after. So, uh, yes, long before Taboo Tuesday ever existed, WWE tried their hand at a Tuesday pay-per-view, and it obviously did so well they didn't try it again for another 13 years. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they, they really did use that show to promote Tuesday in Texas. They were promoting a Jake Roberts, uh, Macho Man Randy Savage match. They were promoting the Hogan-Undertaker rematch. Like, immediately after Taker won the championship, you know, they, they were promoting the fact that there would be a rematch for the title. Uh, and so that was Survivor Series 91. Still one of my, one of my more favorite Survivor Series shows. I'm, I'm a fan of those old... 
traditional Survivor Series matches. You know, Undertaker's first title win, kind of a big deal. Flair's first pay-per-view. I, I enjoyed the event in 91. 21 years ago this week, on November 25th, 1992, Survivor Series. This was the first Survivor Series almost entirely to ditch the traditional elimination concept in favor of singles matches and tag team matches. I think on the entire show they had one Survivor Series elimination match, and I think it was three-on-three. It wasn't even four-on-four or five-on-five. There's a lot of stories with with respect to this pay-per-view because the card, as it was originally announced, looked nothing like it actually ended up happening. Uh, For example, originally it was going to be Macho Man and the Ultimate Warrior. They were the ultimate... uh, I think they were called the Ultimate Maniacs. Against Ric Flair and Razor Ramon. And what ended up happening was the... Well, let's, let's backtrack a little bit here. Okay. We had... British Bulldog beating Bret Hart at Wembley Stadium at SummerSlam to become the Intercontinental Champion, okay? In one of the biggest matches in company history, that crowd in Wembley is still, I think, it may still be legit the biggest crowd in the history of that company. It wasn't, you know, some blown-up attendance figure. They legit had about 80,000 people at Wembley for SummerSlam, and it was in the UK, the Bulldog was the big hometown hero, uh, he came out of that thing like the big conquering star, and only he wasn't the world champ. He was the Intercontinental. See, he was going to defend that title against the Mountie. Talk about a step down. He was going to defend it in an undercard match against the Mountie at Survivor Series. Uh, and I, I remember them advertising the match in WWF's own magazine back then. I still have that magazine somewhere here. Uh, so what happened is... This was around the time that they were getting really serious about cracking down on drugs, uh, on steroids. A lot of shit was heating up at that time with with the steroid stuff. And they got serious. Vince McMahon got real serious about cutting down on that stuff. A lot of guys, their physique shrunk, all, all that stuff. Bulldog and Warrior got busted. And I don't remember exactly what they were busted for. I think in one case it was growth hormone. There may have been other steroids involved. I don't remember all the names of them. But... They both got caught. And to show you how serious Vince McMahon was, he had the Bulldog drop the Intercontinental title to Shawn Michaels, a much smaller guy, on Saturday night's main event, and he fired the British Bulldog. This guy that was just in the main event of their biggest show, one of their biggest shows ever, beat Bret Hart, became the champion. And he took the title off him two months later, and he fired him. And with the Ultimate Warrior, I think it was the same thing where... They came to suspect that the warrior was having growth hormone, I think, shipped from overseas. Uh, I don't know if they had evidence, but they certainly suspected him of it, and they fired him. The ultimate warrior, one of their biggest stars. There were rumors they were going to put the world title on him. He was in the main event of the next pay-per-view, and he fired him too. And that's when they had to do the angle where Mr. Perfect hadn't wrestled the match in over a year. He was out with a back injury. He was managing Ric Flair for a while. He was an announcer. And I'll never forget the angle on Primetime Wrestling. It was him and Bobby Heenan. They were two of the uh, the announcers on the show. They had like a, it was almost like a round table. It was either Vince McMahon or, you know, Gorilla Monsoon at different parts would sit at the head of the table. And then they'd have two guys sitting on one side, usually baby faces. Two guys, usually heels, sitting on the other. They would throw it to some pre-tape matches, come back, and they would they would interact. And I'll never forget the angle they did here, and I don't remember exactly what led to it, but Bobby Heenan basically got up in Perfect's face and said, Listen, we both work for Ric Flair. You do what Flair tells you to do, I do what Flair tells me to do. 
Perfect didn't take very kindly to this. And I think Heenan even slapped him at one point. So that was the babyface turn. Mr. Perfect stood up to Bobby Heenan. He poured some ice water on his head. Uh, actually, now I remember what it was. Randy Savage. Randy Savage had uh, said, I, I picked Mr. Perfect to be my partner. And the two of them laughed it off until Heenan started making those comments. And Perfect said, you know what, Savage? I accept. I am going to be your tag team partner at Survivor Series. And so that was a last-minute thing because it was supposed to be Warrior. But he fired Warrior. So that changed the whole dynamic there. And it changed the whole main event because Bret Hart now was the WWF champion. The month before, Ric Flair dropped the title to Bret at a house show in Canada. Because the heat was on with the steroid stuff. And Bret fit the perfect mold for what Vince wanted the champion at that point to be. A smaller guy. Uh, a guy that was perceived as being clean, even though... I mean, Brett did steroids early in his career. He, he's admitted to it. Uh, but he certainly didn't look like the roided-up monster that a lot of those guys did at the time. I mean, neither did Flair. But I think Vince probably just looked at Flair as being part of the old guard. He just wanted the belt on somebody new, somebody fresh, uh, somebody clean. So Brett got the belt. And Sean got the Intercontinental belt. And all of a sudden, in 1992... Okay, because think about that. This is still during an era where WWF was dominated by these big guys, right? And it's 1992, and the main event of Survivor Series is Bret Hart against Shawn Michaels for the World Championship. They were both title holders. Only Bret's belt was on the line. So the fans got a great show because Bret and Shawn had a great match. That's one of the, the great Survivor Series matches. Was is the first Bret-Shawn match from 92 it's the survivor series title match between bret hart and Shawn michaels i think that gets overlooked a lot because of montreal uh but they had a great match but that was your main event and also on that show there was a nightstick on a pole match between big boss man and nails uh there was the first coffin match as they called it back then a coffin match between undertaker and kamala and yoko zuna made his pay-per-view debut in the wwf he beat virgil so a very noteworthy show, but a show that changed. It went through a lot of different transformations by the time the final card aired on pay-per-view. 19 years ago this week, on November 26, 1994, it was three days after winning the WWF Championship from Bret Hart, Bob Backlund shows up in Madison Square Garden and drops the title to Big Daddy Cool Diesel in eight seconds. Diesel literally kicked him in the gut, gave him a powerbomb, and won the title in record time. And so the Diesel... Year-long reign begins. I talked about it last week. One of the biggest bombs in the history of that company. Uh, business did not boom during the period that Diesel was champion. And look, there were a lot of things going on in that company. It just the product wasn't hot, but Diesel just was not a good drawing champion. He sucked. And uh, that was the start of his year-long reign. And finally, three years ago this week, on November 29th, 2010, Sheamus beat John Morrison in the finals to become King of the Ring on a special episode of Monday Night Raw. They have not done another King of the Ring since, and maybe that's a good thing, seeing as how Sheamus's career went off the rails after winning the crown here. Remember the antlers? Sheamus would come out wearing those antlers. Then he went on a losing streak. It's like, it's like when someone wins the Money in the Bank briefcase. More often than not, what happens? Their career turns to shit before they win the title, or maybe they don't win the title. But if they do, when they win the title, it brings the title down instead of the title bringing that person up. This is WWE booking. If, if that's how they're going to treat King of the Ring, it's better off dead and buried. Like the winner probably would be. And that was three years ago this week. If you have questions for the mailbag, again, please email them to me, the Solomonster 
at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm always posting on there, at Solomonster, so follow me there. Facebook.com, we're all over Facebook. We have a profile page. We have a fan page that you can like. We have a discussion group, if you type in the full name of the show. We've got a community of almost 750 people, and uh, hopefully you're part of that community. If you're not, get on there. Type in the name of the show, apply for membership, I will approve you, and you can get in on the fun. There's a lot of good people there. That's on Facebook, and uh, we have a YouTube channel as well. Type in the Solomonster, all one word. That's our official channel. Subscribe to us there. There'll be more content going up in the very near future. And you can stream this show on Stitcher Radio. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we are climbing the sports charts each and every week on Stitcher. And we need your support to get even higher. So even if you listen to the show already, part of the show, maybe listen to half the show when you download it, listen to the other half on Stitcher. Uh, Every time you stream the show for any length of time on Stitcher, it helps us. So uh, definitely check the show out on there. Maybe every other week you check us out on Stitcher instead. We're in iTunes. We have a free app in the Google Play Store for those of you with Android devices. We're all over the place. And again, please make a PayPal donation if you can. TheSolemnMonster.com is the place to do it. It's the best way to support the show directly is to give what you can in uh, whatever currency works for you. We accept a whole bunch of different ones. That's uh, via PayPal on TheSolemnMonster.com. And that's going to wrap up episode 303. I want to thank you all for sticking with us again. Two hours strong this week. We'll be back with a new episode of The Sound Off next week as we uh, we count down. 2013 is almost in the books here. It's almost a new year. So uh, we'll be back here next week, and hopefully you will be as well. Until then, be well, stay safe, enjoy the week. Hopefully Raw this week is a lot better than it was this past Monday. And we'll see you right back here next weekend. Take care, guys. You've been listening to the Salamonster Sounds Off, giving you the good. Because I'm the man! You don't shut your mouth. I am going to punch you in the face. The bad. You're going to prove to the world that all you are is a B-plus player. And the ugly. And then Hogan announces that he's going to defend the championship, Bully Ray is, against the same Sting who just three months ago lost a match where if he lost, he could never again get another title shot. What in the fuck just happened? Well, mostly the good. I got to get rid of this bastard. I got to get this club. This club sucks. Solomonster sounds off. Since 2007, on thesolomonster.com, Stitcher Radio, and iTunes, The Solomonster sounds off. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.